Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. A lot of organizations are looking at themselves and saying, hey, I need a BC program, but I'm, I'm intimidated by all these acronyms and all of this process. And how do I get from here to there? Brendan Monahan is the chair of the ASIS International Crisis Management and Business Continuity Council. He is currently an associate director at Novartis, where he is responsible for coordinating business continuity, risk and crisis emergency management in the U.S. As I mentioned, the financial, these criminal networks have, have uh, developed, they've sophisticated, they've, they've grown in sophistication. They've taken, in many cases, these, uh, these underground networks have adapted and have taken many of their profits and proceeds and almost like a company have developed their own R&D programs and reinvested many of their proceeds gained by their illicit activity into further enhancing and developing uh, their means and, and, and by which they uh, act out their crimes. Michael Breslin is the Director of Strategic Client Relationships and Federal Law Enforcement for LexisNexis Risk Solutions. He's a retired federal law enforcement senior executive with over 24 years of law enforcement and homeland security experience. Michael served as the Deputy Assistant Director of the United States Secret Service in the Office of Investigations with oversight of 162 domestic and foreign field offices. That and much more all coming up on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Brendan, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow, we have a big topic to talk about today in uh, in a short period of time, but let's see if Mm -hmm. we can get it all in. And and by the way, if we can get it in, that proves that the podcast is, in fact, resilient. Business continuity, back in the day, uh, when I did it, was part of security, right? But, you know, it's just something we did because we thought it was a good idea. Now it's really kind of moving into the C-suite. It's part of the strategic business plan. So define for us, what is the new normal when it comes to business continuity? Yeah, indeed, indeed Chuck, you're, you're right. Business continuity is, has taken on a whole new meaning in recent years and, uh, and continues to evolve with the needs of business. And I think the simple answer to your question is that business continuity is really nothing more than how you do what you need to do when things stop being normal. In other words, do you have a plan in place for going from a blue sky day to something has happened that will interrupt your business and back again? And and that's how I like to begin when I talk about BC with business partners inside of an organization, because it's something that can usually connect people pretty quickly rather than diving into technical terms and acronyms and, and things. It's really about finding what it is you need to do to keep keep the wheels on the bus when everything is kind of falling apart. And that's about focusing on truly critical business operations and asking some tough questions about what your priorities are and, and what they should be under other than normal circumstances. Now, the irony is business continuity only comes into play when there's a crisis. So we have to link Crisis yeah. management and business continuity together. Otherwise, it's really not going to work. You're you're exactly right. And you know, it's it's becoming an increasingly important topic about the connection between the two. Um, because for for a long time, I think business continuity has functioned as a as a service that just has a tendency, especially in large organizations, to get backburnered when there's so many other important priorities in front of us every day. You know, you're right. We have to link crisis management and business continuity intricately, but recognize that they're, they're separate activities. You know, I, I think a good analogy and one that I like to use about connecting these two activities is 
the story of an elevator, right? So if you imagine, Chuck, that you and I are on an elevator in a large building and it's the only elevator in that building and it suddenly stops when falls to the floor, right? And we're okay, but the elevator's out of service, right? So the, the activity around extricating you and I from the elevator, immediately assessing what went wrong is really a crisis management activity, you know, in response to an acute situation. The business continuity piece comes in with, well, how do we keep the activities in the building running without an elevator? Well, quite simply, we're going to use the stairs right, for as long as we can. And maybe we'll move some activities from higher floors to lower ones to make it easier until we can restore that elevator to service or come up with some other meaningful workaround. You know, and that's, that's kind of like how I like to explain the connection between the two in simplest terms. You know, it's, it's interesting too that you bring this up now because the BCI, which is, um, is another organization that provides certifications in the, specifically in the, the business continuity world, just published a, a paper on organizational resilience and they surveyed BC practitioners from across the world and across industries. You know, one, one of their key findings was that the major priorities for, for BC wasn't just BC activities, but the link to crisis leadership and management. So what it tells me is a couple of things. First is that for business continuity, whether it's a function of your security unit or it's part of your legal department or clients, but business continuity has to be a partner with the larger organizations. In other words, it has to be strategically aligned with the business that it's serving. And in a complex organization, like the one I work for and, and many of our ASIS partners work for, there are a lot of business units under the heading of an enterprise. So the challenge for a BC professional in an organization like that is to really help those business units develop ownership of their own BC plans, provide them with the guidance and the ability to do that work themselves, but they need to really own it. And, and part of uh, the path towards, towards winning that is to have some strategic alignment with what the organization as a whole wants to achieve. And if you think about it in those terms, then you can, you can start to imagine a way in which business continuity and crisis management aren't just cost centers a major enterprise, but can actually help that business run better on a day-to-day blue sky basis and not just during crisis and response. What I mean by that is if you're doing BC in this way and you're thinking with an open mind and along the lines of what the business wants to achieve, you, you may find efficiency in leading a business unit through the development of a BC plan and asking them to think hard about what they really need and what it would take to get it back, business units will arrive at their own conclusions about how to make things run a little better on an ongoing basis. And I, and I think that's something that we can take more credit for sometimes, is as counselors to the business, helping them find ways to do what they need to do better uh, in, in general, and not just when, when things hit the fan. Well, that's an excellent point. There's some new acronyms that have come up since I've done this. <laughs> Way back in the day, we have we have RTOs and RPOs, uh, recovery time objectives and recovery point objectives and and business impact analysis. What these are great terms, I think, to kind of focus uh, your objectives. Uh, speak to those and, and tell us what those things mean for our people that might not know. Absolutely, Chuck. There's a whole world of acronyms inside the, the BC uh, function, and calling it a BC function, maybe I'm guilty of that myself. But business continuity presents. Um, a whole set of uh, measures and performance indicators that a program can use to measure its 
maturity and its success and the level of service that it's providing to the organization. So take, for example, you know, a recovery time objective in RTO is, you know, how long, how long can you be without service, whatever, whatever it may be, before it really brings your organization or a critical function to its knees or to some minimally accepted level of risk. And when you, you go through a BIA or a business impact analysis, what you're doing is assessing um, what the key business processes are and asking yourself how long can you live without them and under what circumstances um, you're willing to do so. And then what it would take to get them back or to have them never fail in the first place. And that having done all of that assessment up front, you know, when the when the sky is blue, then you can start to help the business make decisions about where they want to invest in their resiliency. Now, having said all that, RTO, RPO, which is a recovery point objective, that's a measure of how much data you're willing to lose in terms of time. Um, BIAs, MTDs, there's a million of these. I think, candidly, that many of these terms and their application present an obstacle to good BC. Because I, I, th I think sometimes the business can get caught up in chasing goals around some of these numbers, which, if, if not applied carefully, can become arbitrary targets and, um, and really not, if carefully applied, bring you meaningful resilience. What I think matters more, Chuck, is to think about business continuity in the simplest terms, which is regardless of what goes wrong, right? regardless of the cause of my business interruption, whether it is a storm, an earthquake, an armed attack, an active shooter, any number of things, right? civil unrest, whatever the, the threat may be, the effect is always only going to be a few things. And that, those are the unexpected unavailability of people, places, and things. So whatever happens to my organization, I know the result is going to be, regardless of how good and comprehensive my plans are, that I'm going to be unexpectedly without the staff I need, the facilities I depend on, or the resources that I'm going to need to overcome that situation. Now, if I think about my planning in those terms, I can very quickly come to some really meaningful conclusions about what it's going to take to get resilient. So if you're, if you're an organization that's got a mature program in terms of business continuity, and you're, you're already applying uh, performance indicators and, and things like recovery time objectives, recovery point objectives, and you're, you're running a, a mature business impact analysis process through, um, through its paces, then, then you're already in good shape. But a lot, of, a lot of us aren't already at that point. And a lot of organizations are looking at themselves and saying, hey, I need a BC program, but I'm, I'm intimidated by all these acronyms and all of this process. And how do I get from here to there? And I think it's that simple. Start with people, places, and things, and look at what really matters, your truly critical business processes. And now, how do I do that? Exercise first. The first and best thing, mature program or brand new program, is to start with an exercise, Chuck. And from there, you can lay out in a very intuitive, user-friendly way for the business what's going to take to help them fill the gaps that they identify themselves. There's no better idea than one I think of myself, right? Um, and, and that's true for all of us. So if I can lead a discussion where the, the business or my client identifies for themselves what's missing and what they need to do to fix it, then we're going to get to the right solutions with the means and the will to do something about them. And, and I think that's, that's a really good place to start, and it's a really good place to pause and assess a program that's already in progress. Brenda Monahan, 
chair of the ASIS International Crisis Management and Business Continuity Council. Brendan, I have to say, my next studio, uh, I'm going to rent space inside your office building because I think I'm going to be very safe <laughs> when something goes down. Very well stated. Very good points. Uh, excellent information. If you're going to be at GSX, uh, stop by and say hi. I, I'd like to continue the conversation. I sure will, Chuck. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great talking with you. Thanks for coming on ASIS Security Management Highlights. Michael, welcome to Security Management Highlights Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, Chuck. Today, we're going to talk about transnational financial cybercrime. And to get started, let's uh, let's talk about your background. Give us some of your street creds. You recently joined LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Tell us a little bit about your role over there and, and what they do. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I recently, about seven, eight months ago, uh, retired from a little under 24 years of service with the United States Secret Service. Wonderful opportunity came up. Uh, to work for LexisNexis Risk, Risk Solutions, who has a long-standing history of great partnership and, and extensive relationships and assistance to the law enforcement community, both on the city, state, tribal, and federal arenas. I work with the federal federal team with the federal law enforcement community to provide and bring awareness of the uh, LexisNexis Risk Solutions uh, solutions and products to to the market. The company maintains billions and billions of public records. They have patented uh, linking technology and they have much, much smarter people than I working day in and day out to provide information to law enforcement that kind of provides uh, cross-linking and jurisdictional data from law enforcement agencies uh, matched up against these billions of open source public records. And it helps law enforcement and these officials that seek uh, the solutions from the company uh, help better identify an identity, uh, target uh, a specific action uh, where a law enforcement agency or company would be able to target their investigative approach or strategy to help identify, uh, like I said, a, a target and uh, predict upcoming events through predictive analysis and all really in the hope to help better solve crime uh, apprehend those involved in, in illicit or criminal activity and, and help best serve the public. The Secret Service has been on the case in this field many, many years. We use them extensively at the studios. One thing I have to say about the Secret Service that I was always impressed with is they were very, very good at reaching out to other agencies and collaborating on cases. One of the things that continually need, or one of the factors, I should say, that continually need to, to be looked at uh, and improved upon, it's really a never-ending uh, project, is this need for collaboration and partnerships. Um, one of the reasons that the Secret Service in my time, and I'm certain will continue, uh, has been very successful, whether it be in the financial crime investigative arena or in their other uh, uh, mission, which is the protection of the president, the vice president, and duly elected officials, is their ability, almost they take a strategic approach to the concept of partnerships and engaging with their city, state, federal, and tribal partners on the law enforcement side, but also very much so on the public sector and the private corporation, private sector side. The Secret, Services, Secret Service 20 years ago, 20, no, excuse me, yeah, about 20, 21 years ago, developed the first National Electro Electronic Crimes Task Force. Uh, and that started back at Seven World Trade Center back in 1995, six years prior to the, the attacks uh, of 9-11, and that was the first electronics crimes task force that basically consisted of the Secret Service as the lead federal agency, 
with all its federal partners, many of which I mentioned to you a little while ago. Uh, but it, what was new to it was the inclusion of private sector partners as well as academia. Um, and I think not only the Secret Service, I think federal law enforcement um, and the government in general, U.S. government in general, has learned uh, at times through trial and error and at times through um, mistakes, right, that in order to combat any type of challenge, whether it be on the counterintelligence side or as the focus of our conversation today, Chuck, is the evolution of cybercrime and transnational criminal organizations, that it can only be done through a partnership. Any success would be really uh, based on a team approach. You know, back in about 2014, 2015, analog cameras were surpassed by digital cameras. And I just recently learned that around the same time, cybercrime, cyber bank robberies, let's call it, exceeded physical bank robberies. It's, it's really interesting that, that this problem has progressed so rapidly. Tell us some of the things that are going on and some of the steps that are being taken to get ahead of this. Absolutely. Um, a few things I'd like to touch upon. Um, and you mentioned the, the growth of the analog cameras. You know, cybercrime uh, has evolved, okay? There's been an evolution. So you just take the past 20 years where it used to, primarily it started off as a credit card fraud and identity fraud. And, and over the last 20 years, it has really evolved uh, primarily with Russian-speaking non-state actors, uh, criminal groups that have um, basically adapted uh, in some cases, in many cases, far ahead of, of law enforcement's ability to do so because of constrained budgets and, and bureaucratic uh, reasons, have advanced, have kept up with advances in technology. Um, they have, in many cases, exploited the good potential and the good use of the internet and technology and adapted their methods to enhance uh, and really grow and in, 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 into more sophisticated areas of financial fraud, all at the risk of, uh, the potential risk of undermining the confidence level in the financial system, financial financial institutions and payment systems. In a nutshell, what I found in my research and in my experience and really in my working over the years, and whether it be um, on the front line of, of financial crimes investigations, uh, I started out 20, 24 years ago working uh, treasury check investigations. So if you remember those days, you would get your IRS refund or a, uh, some type of government check in the mail. And I worked uh, extensively with partnerships with city and state law enforcement officers, namely even the, uh, on the federal side, the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, we would work stolen T-check cases. But over the years, as I mentioned, the financial, the, these criminal networks have, have uh, developed, they've sophisticated, they've, they've grown in sophistication. They've taken, in many cases, these, uh, these underground networks have adapted and have taken many of their profits and proceeds and almost like a company have developed their own R&D programs and reinvested many of their proceeds gained by their illicit activity into further enhancing and developing uh, their means and, and, and by which they uh, act out their crimes. I wanted to kind of offer a perspective, like I said, based on a little bit of research and, and some of my experience and, and briefly describe the evolution of cybercrime uh, to where we are today. It's a, it's a pay for service. It's offered as a, as a, as a service at times. So the, uh, the risk, it's almost they engage almost in risk assessment processes, almost as uh, corporations do where you do not have to be as sophisticated in technology or the internet or in cyber security or cyber crime to basically install ransomware or exploitation kits. Uh, the, 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 these uh, illicit activities are available for sale uh, on the dark web. So the risk 
factor is 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 low. The potential for financial gain is extremely high. Um, and because now, obviously, there are no borders when it comes to cybercrime, depending on where the crime occurred and where it originated from, uh, at times it's often difficult to identify and, and, and apply attribution to the, uh, the, the cause of the crime and, and the people responsible for it if they're overseas or they're using various spoofing technologies to, to mask their identities. So uh, I find that interesting. Uh, I think law enforcement has done a great job over the years. Um, and you and I talked prior to the interview, Chuck, on, on the partnerships. And you mentioned uh, your private sector career and, and, and your partnerships in working with law enforcement to combat this, this epidemic, really. Uh, and you've got the statistics. Uh, you've read some of the reports, as I have, in terms of the, the growth of cybercrime, whether it be through business email compromises ransomware, uh, phishing attacks, it has a major impact on the economy, a financial impact on the economy, a financial impact on the consumer. And as the impact, as I alluded to before, Chuck, that you cannot put a price to, is the confidence level of the public. As I mentioned, law enforcement has done a good job, but partnerships are needed, strengthen and renewed collaboration between the public and private sector. Another component is the need for renewed and strengthened partnerships on the international level. As, uh, as you know, and as your, re as your listeners know, uh, and I mentioned cybercrime has no border. Cybersecurity, the internet, the internet of things is universal. It's global. The internet is a force for good. It enables global commerce. It, it has really provided uh, enhancements in the way we live, but there are people out there that have exploited the gaps in the internet and technology for nefarious reasons. And renewed partnerships and uh, relationships with our foreign law enforcement partners overseas, to include the private sector companies overseas, is a necessary component in identifying, um, degrading, containing some of these bad actors and bringing them to justice. I find it very interesting that cybercrime, you know, it's, it's organized, obviously. There's some state players involved in these things. And regular old-fashioned criminal organizations. But what we're also seeing is a trend to not have that organization, not have somebody at the head of it, almost like it's a co-op of criminals cooperate together and share information. But there is no really central organized crime figure involved in that. And that's a, a new challenge for law enforcement to, to investigate and prosecute, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had mentioned before how these uh, these criminal groups they've adapted right they've adapted to the progress and the methods and the mo of law enforcement they've reinvested many of their profits and their illicit activities they've re uh, almost like developing their own r d programs and they really have done a really good job just trial and error uh, lessons learned there are forums and and blogs on the dark web where these people openly um, will trade trade secrets, what works, what doesn't. Um, so it really is a challenge uh, for, for those on the side of good, to law enforcement, to continually stay abreast of the latest developments and uh, continually uh, be on guard against the, the, these groups. I'll give you an example, and, and it's, it, it, really is, it, it really is something, uh, I'd hate to say commendable because of the, 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 the pain and suffering and the damage that they wreak upon people and, econ and the economy, but they really, because the attribution is, is difficult with regards to these cyber actors, as I mentioned, is, it's a borderless crime. It's difficult because of uh, sometimes lack of or constrained partnerships or the existence of weak or non-existence of extradition treaties with foreign countries or 
uh, corruption in some of these uh, countries that uh, that we in the United States law enforcement community must partner with. It's very difficult at times to, although we have the capability at times to identify the bad actors that are operating overseas and exploiting our open society here in the U.S. and, and, and causing uh, kind of undue risk and fraud to our financial institutions and payment systems, that's half the battle. The other half of the battle is to be able to extradite these folks. Uh, and that is not to say that we do not do that as a law enforcement community. Uh, many a time, it's it's either open source or there are many activities that uh, uh, are on the judicial process that we are not aware of where people are identified and the cooperation from foreign countries are sought and extradition treaties obtained and the person brought back uh, to face the, the U.S. judicial system and face uh, face um, justice. I liken it to the, the old Colombian drug cartels from years ago. What they did was, in the face of the government pressure and public awareness um, of their trade, the drug lords, if you recall, decided to sell their, their products to the Mexican cartels years back. And kind of by doing that, they were no longer held responsible uh, for the transportation of their product. It almost became like a third party like a third-party logistics here, broker. It kind of provides them a bit of uh, one step removed from the process. And that was an example of, of how they adapted to the strides and the progress that law enforcement was making. Uh, very similar is the, are these transnational criminal groups and these groups of, of cybercrime hackers uh, have done the same, very similar, by uh, taking advantage and continually adapting. Is the Secret Service taking the lead in this because of the necessity to collaborate with other governments around the world? I know the FBA works on it as well, but who, who is kind of taking the lead in this from the federal government law enforcement point of view? So I would, the Secret Service has jurisdiction over financial crimes. It's in the uh, United States Code, Title 18, 1029, uh, for access device fraud. They have a very active role and lead on conducting financial crimes. If uh, Actually, most don't know, but the Secret Service has its origin in, the, uh, in suppressing the counterfeit currency that was a problem during the Civil War. It was only till many years later that they were, by presidential order, authorized to pro provide protection to the President of the United States. But the Secret Service actually started by investigating counterfeiters, uh, the greenbacks and, and, and the proliferation of counterfeit currency during the Civil War. Uh, over time, because uh, Secret Service used to be part of the Department of Treasury, uh, they evolved and, and, and uh, expanded their jurisdiction into computer crimes and financial crimes to include credit card fraud, identity fraud, any type of access control fraud. Um, so the Secret Service is very active in this space. Uh, they are not the only federal law enforcement that is tasked with financial crimes investigations. The Federal Bureau of Investigation plays an active role as does the U.S. United States Postal Inspection Services, the Homeland Security Investigations, uh, United States Marshals. So I think uh, many of the, our federal law enforcement partners have a hand in some aspects. The problem is big. It's enormous. Um, and when I was in law enforcement, um, and at times the turf battles and the jurisdictional conflicts at times would occur, it wasn't an original saying, but it was one that we would quote often that the sandbox, the playground is big enough. There's more than enough space to play. Let's cooperate and get along really for the, for the best of the American people. Michael Breslin, LexisNexis, Rich Solutions. Been a fascinating conversation. And uh, Michael, I got to say, I feel like I'm in good hands. I feel like my uh, bank account's being watched over. So I appreciate your service, <laughs> both public and private, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. And make sure you use a complex password, okay, and change it quite often. <laughs> well, I get I get hacked at Black Hat every year despite that. So I don't know if there's any hope for that. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. And we'll, uh, we'll see you uh, in the future. 
Thank you, sir.